Hey, this is Jim coming to you with really, really poor audio quality from the coronavirus pandemic quarantine. I'm sitting in my one bedroom of place in uh, San Francisco. It's a beautiful morning. I just sat in the sun. I'm loving doing this. I like go out very early while the sun is still rising. Hasn't quite come up over the buildings across the street from me. And just sit out there for a few hours and just experience the morning. Listen to the few birds that there are, absorb the few, you know, nature scents that exist in such an urban area. Ah, oh, it feels so nice. I wish this could just be part of a, like a job I have. I could just be paid for like being out in nature this early in the morning, every day. I don't know, maybe, maybe I need that to be my morning commute. I need to live somewhere and I can just walk through trees or like the desert uh, to get to wherever it is I'm, I need to, to work. I don't know. Um, occasionally I wake up in the mornings and like record my dreams. I'm trying to like keep a dream log, which is easier to do with voice memos because you can just get all the details out much quicker. It's, it's, it's hard. I've been sitting there with a notebook just trying to write in the middle of the night. Uh, yeah, you're trying to get every detail down. And it's like, by the time you do that, you're just awake because you've been sitting there scribbling these things. And you can't even read them half the time. You wake up the next day, you're like, uh, well, I don't know what this is. Should I learn shorthand? <laughs> um but yeah, the voice memos are good. I usually don't talk about these things publicly, but I'll, I'll say, I guess I can, I don't remember the dreams I had last night specifically, but there's, I've had dreams recently and the theme that seems to recur is like authority. So I'm, I've talked about this before. Like I definitely have like a rebellious personality. I'm like contrarian. I'm always looking at like whatever the rules are and like, how can I break these? You know, uh, and if I broke these, how would it, how would it make things better? Like, in what way could I be justified in breaking the rules to like improve the existing system? Uh, yeah, just part of my makeup. Like, very, very, very skeptic. How can we improve things? Um, but the, the dreams I've been having lately, the, the theme has been law enforcement. Like, I'm doing something, and maybe I'm not doing something, but I'm, I'm involved with people who are doing something that's clearly illegal and we're trying to like run from the cops or hide from them. There's always this fear of being apprehended. Like I'm, I'm not really worried about going to jail or, you know, uh, but I'm worried about being caught. Like just that moment where I think the cop is bending me over the, the, the cop car and putting the handcuffs on and reading me my Miranda rights. Just the humiliation of that moment seems to like freak me out. So I don't, I don't know what that means. It may be that my interpretation, it's one, one possibility that I've been treating this whole coronavirus time the last two months when I've been unemployed. Um, and I left my job voluntarily. It was kind of accidental, the timing. I left my job just before this all happened with the intention of, um, you know, looking for the next thing. And it was definitely the right time to do that. But I've been, I've been definitely focused on myself, introspective, trying to figure out, okay, well, 
what do you want to do next? Like, let's go inward, really figure out where you'd want to, where you want to steer to next, where you want to navigate to. And, uh, I think that's the right way of, of approaching this time. It's been a very, very, it's been a very, very good use of this time for me. Um, but I feel like the message might be with the police officers chasing me and I'm running, like maybe I need to introduce a little bit of self-discipline into things. I've had very, very unstructured days. It's just like, I'll lie down and like take a siesta if I feel like I want to. I'll just read whatever I want. Uh, and there's some things I'm focusing on, but it's kind of like, yeah, just jump around between various books. Don't focus on any one thing. You watch some TV if you want. I am, I am doing exercise, uh, pretty routinely, uh, trying to like, um, you know, just mix that up. I haven't been doing that so much the last week or so. I've kind of let that fall by the wayside just to focus on other things. Maybe that's why the cop dreams are coming up. But I think it might be like, yeah, we need we need some discipline. I feel like that's on Arnold Schwarzenegger sounding board uh, somewhere. Like you lack discipline. Is that from Kindergarten Cop? I don't remember what that, I don't know what that's from. Anyway, that could be it. I, I don't know. I kind of feel like that might be what we need. Like there might be a, a broader message there. Like this, this whole pandemic thing has been nuts. And I, I, I kind of understand, like, I personally understand why Trump got elected. I understand why people support him. I don't, but I would, I get the appeal. I definitely do. Um, I think it really doesn't come as a surprise to me. When he won, I was like, yeah, that's not a good thing. But I understand it. Unfortunately, I understand. I understand how this came to pass. And I think that this is what this is highlighting right now is that really, I don't think it's Trump alone, but just us as a people, the people he has in his, his, his cabinet, um, Congress, just more broadly, I think, I think there is kind of this lack of discipline. Like, I think there were a lot of people who felt disenfranchised by the system, who felt like it wasn't listening to them. So when the time came, it's like, okay, we have this election, choose between Trump and Hillary. Let's just send a wrecking ball into Washington to, like, drain the swamp, cause upheaval. I think people felt that that was a change that was needed. And it may have been needed. I don't know if Trump was the correct candidate to, I don't know if he was the correct wrecking ball, so to speak. I don't know if he has, you know, uh, lived up to those promises that he made during his campaign. But I really think that this is people wanted to upset the system. People wanted to mutiny. And I think he kind of ran on a platform of that during his campaign during 2016. I think it resonated with people. And the thing is, is that that can be your message for a campaign. Uh, but you, you, Right now, you can't operate as the federal government in that way. Like, we, we don't need uh, upheaval. We don't need mutiny. We don't need to try and take apart, 
institutions because they're somehow broken. Like right now, what we need as a country is the self-discipline. We need, we need structure. We need order. I think that is what we're, we're craving more than anything. Uh, what we desperately need. And it's just, I think we're suffering right now or we're seeing it's just because of that. It's a, it's a lack of, yeah, a lack of here's how we put things together. And, you know, I, it's, I, I'm, I'm reasonably sure it's Biden and Trump in November. I'm going to vote for Biden. And I, 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 you know, a lot of, a lot of Democrats are not happy about Biden being the candidate. They wanted Bernie. And there, it seems like there's still conversations about that. Like Biden is going to lose because Bernie was the better candidate. And uh, it's, I don't know. I, thing is, I, I don't have major ideological problems with Biden. I really don't. And quite frankly, compared to Trump, I think he's, Sure, let's go that way. Why not? Uh, so it doesn't quite feel like I'm just doing the same thing. Like, let's just throw Biden in there as a wrecking ball to like upset what's there. Uh, I think it would, whatever might go wrong, I, I think it, it, it introduces more order to things. It's like the reverse wrecking ball. Like, let's send someone in there to actually establish things. And even if you think Biden has been like some sort of racist son of a bitch in the past, he, he just he's done things you can't see past. Uh, I mean, look at the alternative. I know it's it's like people always say lesser of two evils. That's so terrible. That that's been like every election in my entire adult life. The people are not voting for someone so much as they are voting against the other guy. At least that's the mentality I hear. But I mean, in this case, yeah, I think, I think we all need, I think we all need some self-discipline. We all need to, I don't know, bring structure to things. I, I do see people doing that. People are I, this is definitely what's inspiring and what's reassuring is that at the local level in this crisis, people are organizing. People are figuring out how to put things in place. Like how do we support our neighbors who are elderly and shut in? Like they need their groceries and medicine. Like how do we, how do we put systems in place? How do we take care of ourselves uh, if it's not coming from the top? And I, I that's, it's very reassuring. I, I, I love the fact that I'm seeing so much of that. Um, people do seem to be introducing discipline from the bottom up. It's, it's kind of organizing itself. I'd like to believe that. Like you could talk about trickle down and triple, trickle up economics. I wonder about trickle up and trickle down ethics. Like a lot of people do look to the president for a moral example. Like who's at the top of the chain? Let's, let's emulate him. Let's follow his example. But, uh, you know, you, you, you do see people going against that. Um, not following it strictly and saying like, look, let's just at the local level, let's just do what we think is right. And, uh, 
that uh, that can inform, you know, uh, existing institutions like the, at the bottom level, the very lower systems of people, just citizens doing what's right. I mean, that can that can very much inform what's it's like the, the scene in the office. It's like I think it's at Jim's wedding. Where like they they parodied a YouTube video that had gone viral. They basically emulated it, did the same scene. It's like this is like some random person made a YouTube video that was funny, and uh, you know, traditional media, you know, major broadcast network television show decides to uh, to emulate it instead of the opposite. It's like these things do happen. You see. I feel like the people, what people are doing at the lowest level does trickle back up. I don't know. Kind of out of it. I, uh, I've been, yesterday I just sort of like lazed around. It was like it's Sunday. I'm gonna observe the Sabbath. I'll like avoid the TV, avoid my computer. Just completely disconnected. And I just sort of like meditated a lot. And for me, meditating kind of means you lie down and focus your attention for a little while, and then you eventually just doze off. For, for me, yeah, like basically trying to practice meditation is like basically just ends up with me being an old geezer, just nodding off narcoleptically, just waking up like an hour later, like, whoa, where am I? Uh, but I did a lot of that yesterday during the day, and I went to bed early, like 10. And I woke up at four o'clock in the morning this morning, just like my, my brain is like, you know what, you, I'm cutting you off. You've, you've had, you've had enough, you've had enough sleep, man, just, just get up and, and start your day. And I didn't quite do that. I just came walking out of the bedroom, laid down on the couch and just, uh, you know, fell back asleep for another four hours. And so I've been kind of discombobulated the way you are when you get way more sleep than you need. Just sort of the brain is scrambled. You can get too much sleep. It feels better than you getting too little sleep. But the entire morning, you're just sort of, just sort of in a daze. Yeah. So yeah, I'm coming out of that. Um, Whatever brain chemicals are. Um, I'm really interested in the, um, I don't know, the, the, the evolutionary purpose of sleeping and dreams. Like, how exactly did that come about? I get it that we have like a, a day cycle and a night cycle in life. Uh, like in the world. And so, how is it organisms first, like, sort of said, okay, well, it's, it's about conservation of energy, but there is this need to like close your eyes and regenerate somehow. Like what is regenerating? Is it, is it primarily a mental need? Like the brain just has to, you know, cognitively restore itself somehow. Like it has to expose you to this random imagery to kind of balance you out. Is it a physical thing? Does it need to like rebuild parts like I don't know anything about this I don't know how this came about and I, I don't know how dreams 
factor into it. Like, what is the evolutionary purpose of dreams? What function do they serve? There is a there is a book about this. Like, I have a few of these. Like the Cambridge Cambridge Publishing House, whatever they are, uh, Cambridge Publisher has a series called the Neuroscience of. Like, it's basically you can get the Neuroscience of Intelligence. Uh, by a guy uh, named Dr. Hayer, Richard Hayer. I hope that's how you pronounce his name. That one's very interesting. There's also the neuroscience of expertise, neuroscience of addiction, uh, neuroscience of creativity. These little slim books that are very, uh, they're accessible to, to like, I don't want to say lay people, but if you're kind of familiar with neuroscience uh, and you want to understand like get to a point where you can kind of understand what maybe research papers are saying. This would be a very good springboard for that. And I, I, I think neuroscience is fascinating. I feel like if I were going to go to graduate school and get a degree in science of some kind, it would probably be neuroscience. I thought about this too. I think I would probably study neuro, neuroparasitology, if that's what it's called. I think that's the field but essentially parasites that uh, affect cognition, that affect uh, behavior. Um, and of course, the most well-known example of this is uh, Toxoplasma gondii. I think that's how you pronounce the pathogen, but it's, 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 an, it's an organism that can only reproduce, um, I think in the digestive tract, um, the di digestive system of cats. And so what it will do is it will get into rats. And rats typically have an aversion to cats because they're a predator. They'll, they'll detect cat urine, stay away from that. Um, what this pathogen does is it knows that it needs to get itself into cats. And so it affects the cognition of the rats that make the rats actually seek out cats it's basically hijacking the rat as a vessel uh and making it go towards it's it's the predator that it would otherwise be predisposed to avoid so that this bacteria this uh, i think it's a bacteria whatever this microorganism can get into uh, a cat and reproduce Really crazy. I think this is something people have only started to look at fairly recently. I think we've only become aware of it relatively recently. Um, it's, of course, a very difficult field to study. Um, but I, I would wager not knowing that there are probably hundreds of these things uh, that are influencing human behavior. We probably have tons of microorganisms uh, that are driving our behavior for their own benefit. I, me I mentioned before, like there, there's, I heard like the micro uh, biome, your gut bacteria will influence what you eat. So the bacteria that are flourishing at any given point are probably the ones that consume the nutrients in the foods you've been eating. So if you eat a lot of, you eat a lot of vegetables, uh, 
like the, the bacteria in your gut that flourishes on vegetables will tend to be present in larger numbers. And so you'll be inclined to eat more vegetables. And if you stop eating vegetables, there'll be a, you start eating something else, like eat processed sugar, like a lot of refined sugar, then that will upset the balance and you'll, you'll eventually switch over to wanting to eat more refined sugar right there. It's, it's like, I imagine there's this complex network of microbes that are on our skin and our bodies, probably in our brains and for their own selfish ends, uh, they're influencing our behavior, pushing us to do certain things or to avoid other things that are, um, you know, basically steering, guiding our behavior to making us do what is most beneficial to them. And it's, they're probably all competing with each other. I, I do wonder how much of the brain is driven by that. Like the fact that you, like, I am multitudes. We seem to have arguments with ourselves. Like somebody's saying like one part of our brain that says like, don't eat the chocolate cake. It's just empty calories. You'll feel worse tomorrow. And some part of you saying, yeah, but I really want it. I want that instant gratification like right now. Like, like how much of these internal conflicts that we have, how much of those are driven by, you know, bacteria? I, I've wondered how much of um, religious behavior, like the tendency to be religious, like I know people have been looking for a God gene. You know, can we, can we find like a predisposition to being religious and worshiping? Uh, is there, is there a, a genetic predisposition, like some factor that uh, feeds into that or, or tends to uh, cause that behavioral phenotype. I, I wonder if there isn't like a parasite that did it. Like why does Christianity spread and overtake the Roman empire? Um, who's to say that there wasn't uh, an, a microorganism or a set of microorganisms like Toxoplasma gondii that, you know, neuroparasitize the human brain and uh, make it uh, make it spread like this. A friend of mine told me about uh, Williams syndrome. It's kind of like the uh, dogs are just kind of mindless. They're just happy all the time. Like the, it causes them to just love everyone. Basically the opposite of aggression. And the domesticated dogs tend to, to have this syndrome, like it's prevalent in them. This is why they're just, they're friendly all the time. And some human beings have it. It's kind of like a sunny personality that's more simple, just sort of loves people. Um, and apparently you can, you can observe it in the face, like the structure of the face is affected by this. So it's, uh, I looked it up. It's like people who have elfish features. I, I don't quite know how to describe that. I Google image searched that. I, I was like, okay, I kind of get the idea. And you can kind of think of some people who maybe have that a facial structure, but it's, it's, it tends to be associated with Williams syndrome. Somebody who's just very happy and loving more so than your average person. Like, so that, you know, uh, Christian charity, take care of your neighbors, uh, love thy neighbor as thyself, etc. Like who's to say there isn't like some set of microorganisms that, that drove this spread of this. 
it's not altogether crazy. It would be impossible to prove scientifically. There's no way you can go back and, you know, do that study, figure out if there's anything there. It would, and it would be very, very hard to like establish that even now. If for no other reason, then there really aren't that many control cases. There's, there's, there seem to be large factions of people who were raised in religious environments who have shedded. Um, but I don't know how many like people are raised in a secular household. Um, and people are certainly not raised in a secular cultural context. Like there's always some presence of the religious spiritual elements. So people are always exposed to it and they always either move towards it or away from it. Um, but it's not like, it's not like we have a control anywhere in the world where it's just, that doesn't happen. So I don't know. The question is not, is there a microbacteria or set of pathogens that drive specifically, you know, just generally, sorry, just generally religious behavior, but is there other ones that can be attributed to specific? I don't know. I guess it's a broad question. I'm conflating a lot of things here. Anyway, that's, that's what I might study. If I were going to study science, I would study something neuroscience because the brain is fascinating. I think the next hundred years, whatever discoveries we come up with, they're going to be related to the brain. Uh, and there is a, in this Cambridge series of books I alluded to, there is the neuroscience of sleep and dreams, which I so want to read right now. Since I'm consuming young and kind of getting a sense of like what dreams might mean what implications that they have, uh, the way he interprets them. Um, I really am interested in like, well, what's the, what's the biological basis for it? Like, how did this come about? What parts of the brain spit dreams up? What is it trying to accomplish? What's the evolutionary purpose? I'm not sure I want to like get involved in graduate school as a, a somebody who's studying science because that just, it might be too late for me to do that. Uh, and I, I don't know if I would enjoy that. I don't know if I would enjoy that lifestyle. In graduate schools, uh, as a scientist, you, you really got to be a good salesman. Like you have to be able to pitch. I'm studying this and it's important because it's kind of, kind of depressing. I was watching a video about the Medici's, like the, the Renaissance. Um, period of 300 years before the enlightenment. And it was interesting because it made the point that if you look at the, if you look at the times in history that have produced great art, it is because the society in which it is produced understands the purpose of art and the powers that be. Uh, the people who are capable of providing financial assistance, like being patrons to artists like the Medici's were in, or is it the Medici? I don't know what I'm saying, but it, it, like they basically have a vision and they steer it. They understand, okay, here's the purpose of art that it should serve in our community. And we're going to direct it a certain way. It seems like there's some top down, uh, guidance here like some 
singular people or committee of people say, here's, here's what art should be in our community. Here's its purpose. And we're going to drive it a certain way. And so it, people invest in it because they understand it's a very important part of society and they understand it should play a, a role. So it doesn't just, of course, there are always artists in every uh, generation who are producing art, but the, the eras you can look at, like 19th century France, the 1960s America, um, points in ancient Greece, uh, it's because there was a purposeful effort to establish a purpose for art, a general format, and people were directed that way somehow. And I feel like science is roughly the same thing as that. Like it, it's newer than art. It doesn't go back nearly as far, but it, I guess if you look at, if you consider like what the Pythagoreans were doing to be precursor to science, like we're trying to figure things out. I don't know much about the Pythagoreans. I don't know if they were as much natural philosophy that you could say as a precursor to science or if they were just mystics. I guess they were more. From what little I know about them, they seem like they were more mystics. But yeah, I mean, science is, I don't think, something you take for granted. It's its kind of like if you, if you defund art programs, society just stops thinking that way. If you stop giving economic privilege in any way to, to the creative arts, to music, saying, well, these don't provide any practical benefit to society and you start not supporting them. Um, yeah, and they, they, they decline. And I do think that has an impact on people. This is not something I've given a lot of thought to. Like I've always been kind of a cynical left brained uh, person. If somebody says like, yeah, we need to support music, support the arts, you know, encourage dance at the level of the individual. Sure. I, I completely understand. If you feel that you want to dance or want to be a painter or a sculptor or a metal worker or a musician, if that's what you feel like you're inclined to do, then by all means do it. Go figure out how to build an audience for yourself do your craft as much as possible. If you if you can't support yourself just by doing your craft, then, you know, be your own patron. Get a job, um, you know, doing something more left brained, something that, that feeds into the economy. And, uh, you know, and then do it on your own time. I, I don't know if that's. I'm kind of trying to rethink those assumptions, like one that everything economic. Like maybe the economic system we have in place shouldn't just value things that are left-brained, like mathematics. Um, maybe we shouldn't just look at things and say, well, I don't know, I guess it's a self-fulfilling. It's kind of, There's kind of a feedback loop here. Like what contributes to the economy? And it's like whatever we value economically, there tends to end up being more of that because more people feed into it. Just the generation of uh, 
of stuff, the mass production of stuff. I guess I'm getting it. I, I don't think I can talk cogently about this. This seems like just a massive complex system that I don't think I could deconstruct on the fly in a way that just doesn't sound rambly. But, but I am starting to think like maybe it's not, we should say to artists, well, you have to figure out how to be valuable to the economy and then be your own patron. Maybe the economy should be structured in such a way that we value the correct things. One idea that really stuck out to me is that there was, during the Renaissance, somebody said, the problem is public squalor and private opulence. And that in order to establish a good society, you need to have the opposite, which is to say you need public opulence and private squalor. So you dump a lot of very significant resources into making private or sorry, making the, the public communal spaces gorgeous. Like you build those up and make them places that people want to be. You emphasize public places. And you just, you, culturally, you don't reinforce the notion that you have to have your own private residence. Um, that, that, that's where all the resources go. People earn money and then stay shacked up like basically what we're do all doing right now because of the pandemic um this causes harm because people who are wealthy tend to withdraw into their estates and their luxuries and just sort of spend time among themselves and their own friends and family and uh the public community spaces uh, suffer for this so turning that on its head and what i was what i was watching makes the point that you know there there are cities you can look at that are absolutely gorgeous that come out of this time, like Venice, for example. It's like they, they took the time and invested the resources to make community spaces beautiful so that it would be a beautiful city. So that really you're just in your home to do your own personal things. But if you want to be amongst the opulence, you go out and be part of the community. I think that maybe maybe the point of uh, public parks, I think it was the same. Like, why did we build Golden Gate Park or Central Park in the 19th century? It's like, as things are becoming increasingly urban, you, you want these, these public spaces so people, so there is a sense of community. But I think like architecturally, if you just, if you step outside of parks, I, I think that yeah, architecture from the from the 20th century is just, there's not too many cities you can point to, especially in the United States, where it seems like a thought was given to the aesthetics. It's very much function over form. I think there's very few people who would hear this and take exception to that. And there are exceptions. I would say, like, San Francisco is certainly a city that is, as, as dense as it is, and as much as the economics have shifted it, there is still culture beyond just tech. There's a lot of culture. There's, there's still people being artistic. You see murals on the sides of buildings. There are staircases that are uh, absolutely gorgeously mosaic. And it's not as though there are 
there probably are like barons of industry who are clamoring like developers who say we want to take this real estate and make it something else you know it, but they're in the minority and they would have to fight a very very steep uphill battle to get rid of the sort of beautiful communal things that we have in this in this town so i mean it's it's very much a city there's there's certainly it's it's not as though all the architecture is is beautiful but there's certainly large pockets of it like if you go around and if you pay attention you can walk through the streets of san francisco with your head down just looking at other people if you stop in any given place and look up at the buildings it's it, it, it clearly some thought and design has gone into it i i wonder about this i thought about starting to compile a a book of like just taking photographs of this stuff and figuring out architecturally what what is the style of this you know who who made this and that's what i'd like i'd like to know where a lot of these buildings came from and uh what their design was who designed them you know there, there's certainly large stretches where it's just okay these are just condos and apartment buildings there's and there are little boxes stacked on top of each other but there are, there are you can look at the victorian houses that survived the 1906 fire um west of van ness and those are those are you know gorgeous um that's one example things like that there's certainly more here than there is other places let's see also new orleans i'd like to go to new orleans and see i imagine new york city is probably if you walk around new york city i imagine the buildings are just yeah but still you know you go to your average like the town where i grew up uh just a suburban uh town north of detroit it's it's very much function over form there's no real inspiration for the houses people are saying like what's a you know how can we just simple design you know they're distinct you see different styles but they don't thrill you you drive down the street there's different houses it's like okay well this is serving its purpose and i can see that somebody took some care to make it look good uh but nobody's really nobody's really innovating i i've yet to be in a suburb where I'm, i'm very very impressed there's a suburb close to where i grew up i had some friends who lived there called legoland and it's because the i think all the houses were basically just boxes like they basically had the same of course they're all cubes well, i don't know what i'm saying but they had like the same paneling and the paneling was just different colors and this was the only thing that distinguished them uh you know and layouts were different but it's it just looks like yeah like this this like the, the the conveyor belt is bringing the lumps of clay in and then just something stamping them and then it moves on and does the next one it seems like this is how much of uh, the suburbs that were constructed after world war 2 um this is just the way it looks like they've been produced i don't know but it works it works i guess uh 
Yeah, and definitely a lack of communal space. That is what I didn't like about where I grew up. Like there were parks you could go to, but it was just there, there, yeah, there was like parks, nature preserves you could go walk in. And it was it was great to have those, but there weren't nearly enough of them. It very much was private opulence. I grew up in Oakland County, which I'm told is the the second wealthiest county uh, behind Orange County in California. Uh, I think it was, I think it was because of the auto industry like that. A lot of people made their fortunes from that. Um, Yeah, a lot of people played golf. And there were cities like, I grew up in Troy, which definitely has, yeah, I grew up in a very nice, very big house. And it was a, a, it was definitely surrounded by neighborhoods that had bigger houses and were even nicer. Uh, very, very strange. Like, you wouldn't think that of Detroit. Like, there's a, to the north, there's this little section, uh, where, like, a lot of wealth is concentrated, and there's a lot of people living in their big mansions. Like, Orange County makes sense, of course. Um, but, I, I, Detroit? Oakland County? I've actually never asked, I've never asked this before, but how did that happen? It's kind of like the fact that the largest uh, Arab population, or is it, I think it's Arabs. Yeah, like the largest Arab population that exists in the United States is in Detroit. Like in the Detroit area, I don't know if it's in Detroit proper, but it's a city that's to the south. Um... I'm trying to remember the name of this. I don't remember the name of the city, but like that is the highest concentration of Arabs in the United States is in Detroit. How did that happen? Why? How did they end up there of all places? It's probably just some historical accident. There's a concentration and, you know, uh, yeah. To he who has more will be given and so on and so forth. It just, this, the concentration feeds on itself. But yeah, I, it's, it's, it's weird what a place ends up having just as a matter of a historical accident. But yeah, like I was saying, this is all very complex. I'm just sort of talking my way around something that is, uh, yeah, too many facets for me to really make a, uh, a concrete point. But maybe not making the point is the point. Yeah, so if it was science, I would study neuroscience. And I'm really curious about dreams. If I were going to study technology, like if I was going to go back and say, I want to study something that is mathematically rigorous because I want to continue in the profession that I'm currently engaged in. I want to keep being a software engineer. I would go back to graduate school and get a master's degree in complexity theory. Because I think at, at this point that what you're, what, what you're wrestling with as a senior software person is complexity. And not just in code itself, not just the properties of the code, um, but also in the systems that you build. Um, the whole 
idea of microservices. You just build these little services that talk to each other over a network uh, that serve different functions. And you have complexity in any one given system, in any given module within a system. And you have the complexity of the network, of, of the intercommunication between these different uh, different services. You want to put this massive thing. And what you're trying to control for is them operating in concert with with a minimum of errors or failures. Just knowing in advance you deploy something, it's not going to break other things. And I think it is a complex system and to develop an understanding of generally what can go wrong and how you mitigate it or avoid it in advance, you know, plan around these sorts of things. I think complexity theory is, I just have a sense, not even knowing what complexity theory is. I think that would be, it would give you some mathematical rigor. It would give you an understanding of what characterizes these sorts of systems and how you could apply it. Yeah, I think that would be, would be very, very practical. Um, like it would be more practical. It'd be like, it would be the right big balance of practical and theoretical. Um, I think, and you could, you could conceivably take that and just get, get jobs that had nothing to do with software in the future. If you decided not to be a, a programmer, you could probably take that and be something somewhere else. I, I, I don't know. I've also entertained the idea of being a, well, going back and studying psychology, that is, that is on a par with studying like, uh, neuroscience. Like I'd have to, there are some majors, like if you're going to major in philosophy, you have to be very entrepreneurial. You have to say like, I know how I'm going to use this skill for myself. There are some majors you just, you can't say I'm going to major in this and I'm going to go out into the world and I'm going to have somebody give me a job. You basically have to create a job for yourself or you're teaching it to the next generation. That That's it. Um, and, you know, psychology is more practical than that. It's not quite philosophy, but you have to have a sense of where you're going. I think it's, it's not, you can teach it, but I think you have to know, okay, what is the impact I want to have on the world? How do I want to help people? And how am I going to set that up for myself? How do, how do I set up a practice? Like being a dentist, you know, um, essentially you're just, you're, you have to be an entrepreneur. So I'm going to open a dental practice. I'm going to figure out how to get, customers, figure out how to build a customer base, figure out how to keep, you're basically doing all, you have to have the business acumen to do that. And I think the same thing would be true of um, uh, psychology, at least on the practice side. I'm sure there, there are research options, but again, that's academia. I think you're kind of, that's closer to what I'm saying. You could go teach it. Um, but psychology would be interesting. Like I would, I would, in terms of like helping people, I mean, why not? 
when I was very, very young, I thought of being a part of the clergy. Uh, not because I was that obsessed with the whole idea of God. Uh, I just like the idea of there are people out there in darkness who need help, who need advice, who need guidance. And wouldn't it be nice if you could give that to them? Yeah, it's, yeah, like it's just how do you, how do you alleviate suffering? And it seems like the questions that people are going to their, their therapists with, the questions that they're asking of the therapeutic community in general seems like questions that one or 200 years ago, people would have been going to church and asking. It seems like they're hungering for meaning. They're hungering for purpose. Uh, and not so much, um, I don't know, anything scientific. Yeah, it seems more like more of a spiritual thing. And it's, it's interesting how many different kinds of therapy there are. Somebody told me about one called narrative therapy, which I'd never heard of. And it sounds like some, to some extent, what I've been trying to do on myself the last week. I was like, so, okay, so what's the story in my head? What, what story am I telling myself about myself? What story am I living? And to what extent is that just completely screwed up and wrong? Like, what are the elements that are just completely false and I need to, like, rewrite it, start over from scratch? Um, that's not quite it. Like, I don't understand it because I just learned about this yesterday. But narrative therapy is you, you, you figure out what story you're telling yourself about your life and to what extent it's negative. And then you start framing it better. Like, you tell a different story that is more positive. And this is going to uh, steer you. Um, a certain direction. So the emphasis is not on diagnosis. It's on symptoms. It's on figuring what, what behaviors and beliefs might be driven. It might be driving the symptoms and then kind of rewiring those. It sounds like without being called that, the, 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 the intent of every self-help book that I've ever read, like positive thinking, like figure out don't think of yourself as a failure. Think of yourself as someone who has failed, but is working their way towards success. Always working your way towards success. It wouldn't be called narrative therapy, but it, it, it sounds very much like what, you know, what the works of Napoleon Hill are trying to get you to do. Or, you know, James Allen. Tell yourself a different story. Just rework it. I think that, that makes sense. I'm reading some stuff by Joseph Campbell right now. Uh, the third and fourth books, which are the last two in his Masks of God series. I think it's his magnum opus as an American mythologist. And the third one is Occidental Mythology, which covers the mythologies that are the basis for Western civilization. So largely the Bible, namely the Hebrew and the Christian myths, and uh, the Greek myths as well. Sort of just holistically looking at all these and saying, here's how they, here's the purpose all these things serve. Which is interesting because I, like a lot of people at some point, 
used uh, the Bible as the mythology that I used to make sense of uh, life, which I found limiting to say the very least. Um, but his next one, uh, Creative Mythology, talks more about the contemporary era, focusing on the last 500 years, I guess in the, in the wake of the Reformation, uh, where people seem to not be relying on a single mythology. It seems like everybody's just creating their own, like in order to make sense of your life, to, to figure out what direction you go in you're basically figuring out how to write your own story. You're figuring out how to write your own mythology that guides you. And I, I think that's an interesting concept. I think it is something that we are doing without being aware that we are doing it. And I also think that most people are not really aware of the elements of mythology uh, in a way that they would understand how to construct their own story in a way that is useful or a way to look at their lives and understand, like puts it in a perspective. So it, it, there is meaning to it. You understand why things are happening the way that they are. It seems to be the way we, we process the world, human beings. This is an idea I read 10 years ago and it did sort of change my way of thinking about a lot of things. Human beings don't think in facts. We think in stories. This is how we make sense of the world, so. Yeah. I don't know, yeah, so trying to, trying to study mythology. Um, but Joseph Campbell is very, he's very, very rich and it's very, very deep and he covers a lot of ground. Like he, he doesn't just go chronologically like, okay, and then this happened. And then the next year this happened, Like he bounces all around. Um, it's very much like Carl Jung. I'm working my way through Carl Jung's collected works, the ones that I was able to acquire cheaply. Uh, and each volume, there's like 18 volumes, like 18 massive books of these things. Each one has a theme. Uh, and for example, there is one called Psychology and Alchemy, which he talks about alchemical, or what is it, Al, alchemistry? I don't know what you actually call that branch. Anyway, alchemy, that's it. Um, so you would think that everything he said about alchemy is condensed in there and that's going to be the focus of the volume not really like there are there are other essays that i'm reading and other ones that say like if you want a breakdown of how the, the psychology of the individual in this way it's in my psychology and alchemy and you're like well that has nothing to do with alchemy and the ones that i'm reading actually contain some large sections where he's talking about alchemy So it seems like he just had all these ideas in his head, like the, every essay he ever wrote was just spinning together. Let's bring in, you know, a religion, let's bring in psychology, let's bring in spirituality, like just all the elements. It just somehow amalgamates them together around some topic. 
Uh, and so to order, in order to get like a sense of what he thought about anything, you have to kind of pick through the entire catalog. You have to work your way through and just pick out the pieces and say, okay, well, this, this would tell you what he thinks about this. You can't just pick up the one book on psychological types, for example, uh, which is like how he breaks down what we now understand as Myers-Briggs types, like how you discretize different personalities by the, the four functions of personality. You can't read that one and get every opinion of his uh, from that one volume. You have to like, you have to consult the other ones. So it's kind of the same with Joseph Campbell. Like he's not just going through and ticking off the boxes. Like, okay, well, then this happened, then this happened. Like he's all over the place and tying things together. Um, so you kind of have to go through the whole thing, possibly multiple times, and really pay attention, really digest it. And he's certainly not structuring his writings as if to say, like, here's how you apply this to your life. It's not practical. It's very academic. So it's, it's meaning, it's understanding that's valuable, but you have to work for it. And I don't know, I think there, there's something to that. One of the best educational lessons I ever learned, this is going to sound nuts, but uh, there's, there's a passage in the Bible where people are, people are asking Jesus, like, why do you talk in parables? And he says, I, I talk in parables so that like, it's basically a way of filtering out the people that follows, follow him. Which is interesting because he's saying, I don't want everyone to follow me. Like, I, I don't want disciples of all nations. He says, I want choice disciples. Uh, he says, I, I speak in parables because not everybody is going to get parables. Only the people that are willing to work for the meaning, to think about it, to process what I'm saying. They're going to get it. And those are the kinds of followers I want. I think that makes a lot of sense. If I were going to try and be an educator, uh, that's what I'd want to do. I'd want, uh, I'd want a self-selecting group of students. I want people who say, I'm here because I want to learn. And it really would be a privilege to not only be the kind of instructor that had those students, but to yeah, be the kind of instructor that deserves those kinds of students. I, I, I wish there was a topic that I was, that I knew so well, so thoroughly, uh, that I, I could do that. Like don't, don't give everything away. Don't spell everything out directly. Leave a little bit of ambiguity, leave some, uh, holes in what it is you're saying and I let people put it together and the people that don't want to do that work they just they'll fall away they'll complain they'll leave angry comments on your youtube videos like well i don't get this good you don't want those people you want a self-selecting group of, of, of uh, people who are like disciplined and willing to do the work
if I could be a leader anywhere, like not just an educator, but that's, that's who I'd want. If I had an audience I was speaking to, I would start with that principle in order to construct it. And I think that's what I like about uh, Young and Campbell. Outside of the subject matter, that's the way they approach it. They're, they were very, very well educated, not just in their own respective fields, but about a lot of things. A breadth of knowledge, different subjects, and they were able to pull that all together. And they present it to you in a way that's, you know, not quickly and easily digestible. They make you work for it. And I prefer knowledge that uh, people have to work for. I prefer to work for things. I, I like to work for intellectual points. I don't know if I like working, you know, uh, like doing, like putting in effort. Yeah, that's probably where I need to work. Be less of a, less of a philosopher, more of a politician. Emphasis on action, not only on thoughts. And so on. Um, ah, so I've been reading Michael Pollan's uh, How to Change Your Mind, which is his book about uh, psychedelics. Um, very interesting. He mentions early on that um, somebody says that Abraham Maslow, a psychologist who is responsible for, most well known for Maslow's hierarchy. Um, fulfillment of needs as a human being, um, self-actualization being at the top. And you have to, it builds on them. So you start with, you need water and food. And then you need, uh, I don't know what they are, but essentially there's, you kind of build your way up. And people who make it to the top of the pyramid are, are the most fulfilled psychologically. Very interesting guy. He wrote a lot of stuff beyond just this. I've, I've, I've learned about Maslow's hierarchy in my Psych 101 class as a freshman in college, among with a bunch of other things. It sounds like he is a psychologist I should probably read um, more about, or more of his written works. I think it'd be, yeah, someday. Uh, but he, he apparently, according to this book, he was able to meditatively bring about uh psychedelic experiences like he was able to have like some transcendental transcendental uh kind of i don't know uh, he, he would be he was able to put his mind into that place he was just sort of having a trippy experience um dissolution of ego boundaries feeling like you're at one with things he could do this without the use of drugs and the person in, in the text that Michael Pollan is quoting is saying, like, oh, we're not all so lucky. Some of us have to use the uh, LSD or, or psilocybin uh, in order to in order to trigger these things. But some people are just naturals. That's what I want to know. How do you have a transcendented, uh, transcendental, some words are just, just, just no. Uh, how do you have a transcendental experience without the use of drugs? I, I want to get better at that. I want to be able to do that. I guess this kind of ties into what I was doing yesterday, just sort of lying down, sort of just like not focusing on anything, just sort of letting my brain go. 
and you'll focus on something like you'll be preoccupied with something for a minute or two, but then that kind of falls away. And then you just start having just these random thoughts. You know, for me, it's not images. I don't see images, but I have like, I think in words, I think. Yeah. So like I'm having these little thoughts that just occur to me and they don't have anything to do with anything. They're not necessarily accurate. It's like the, the textual mental equivalent of hallucinations have some basis in reality. I, I wonder if that's part of it. That certainly is not a full-on psychedelic experience, but I feel like if I've been doing meditation during the pandemic, if I'm kind of just sitting down and letting my brain throw stuff at me, if I'm trying to have like waking dreams or get into a dream state uh, while I'm still awake, uh, I, I feel like I've kind of been doing that. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that would be something. I really don't want to... I don't know. I don't, I, I don't think I'm, I'm really into the whole do psychedelics. But I, I think I would go for a psychedelic experience, like the ability to, to see things sort of disassociate with the, uh, the world and get some perspective on it. I don't know. Carl Jung said that this is something that people, young people shouldn't be doing this. Not, not because of a moral thing, um, because it's bad for their brains. But his thinking was that psychedelics are really, it's an experience people should have when they're older in middle age uh, so that they can figure out how they should approach the second half of their life. Like that's when you need that perspective. I think that's one thing that Carl Jung said that really stuck with me is that you, when you're younger, there are certain things you should do. There's a certain way you should approach life. There are certain things you should prioritize, but when you, when you pass middle age and really the sun starts to set past noonday, you can't have the same priorities. You, you can't focus on the same things. You can't try to do the same things you did in your youth. His, uh, he, he, he came to this conclusion from observing that his patients that came to see him with neuroses who were much older. And he noticed that they were typically caused by people who just were trying to stay young, were trying to do what young people did, were trying to do the same things that they did when they were younger. And that just doesn't, for lack of a better way of putting it, it doesn't feed the soul. You have to establish a sort of different purpose for yourself and understanding that, yeah, you, you probably are closer to the end. That might be disturbing, but it's something you have to embrace and you have to figure out how to live according to that. How to live properly in the light of that knowledge. I'd never really thought about that before. It's, it, that is fascinating. I don't know where I am. I am 37, almost 38. I'm, I don't know how long I live. I think life expectancy is longer than 72 now especially for people of my socioeconomic status. Like I, 
72 might be the average somewhere, but I'm not, I'm probably going to live longer than that. Uh, barring, you know, any, uh, being stricken with any sort of terminal illness. I really don't know how long I'll live, but I, I may be, if I'm not at the halfway point, I'm certainly up close to approaching it. And if it's not like a single, if it's not a single point number, then I may, I may be in like the, the noonday years. I'm transitioning from my youth into, uh, like the second half of my life. I don't know. I don't know. But I think it's an interesting question. I, I, I never really thought about it. And I kind of assumed that there was some constancy in how you live life. Like the, the questions you would ask yourself, the approach you would take is more or less constant throughout life. And uh, I realized, yeah, that, that I don't think that can be the case. I think if you, you can be, you can be too old, too young, and you can be too young, too old. You can act the wrong way, not in accordance with your, with, with where you're really at. I don't know. I'm looking at my spam email. Um, it's not necessarily spam email. It's just email that I've. It like it really bothers me when like you somehow end up start getting emails from something because you registered on some website. And it's like I don't I don't want to get these. Uh, so you unsubscribe, and that doesn't take. And you just keep unsubscribing, but it, like whatever system is supposed to take your email off of the list, it just doesn't work. Um, I haven't figured out the optimal amount of time, but some amount of time after so many emails and like the unsubscribe is just not working, I will hit the spam button. And I didn't know this, but I, I, I had a girlfriend who worked in email marketing. She did campaigns for the company she worked for. And apparently you hit the spam button. Uh, that, that, that has an effect. Like companies have to be very, very mindful of that because they're working with companies who are specializing in providing emails. If you get enough people clicking the spam flag, uh, on your, on the emails you're sending out, they can, the, the, the company like offering the emails, like allowing the company to generate them and send them out in mass tends to take some sort of disciplinary action, They'll put them on probation, puts them, but it says like, Hey, you know, you gotta be more careful about this, careful who you're, who you're emailing. So it doesn't have no effect and it certainly didn't take a lot. It wasn't like you needed you know, several hundred people to flag it as spam. It was a very, very small number, like half a dozen. And it would, it would cause them problems. They had to like figure out how to work around this. Well, they weren't a big company. I imagine if you're, I, I doubt anyone is like, well, I mean, Google's probably its own email provider. Like, what am, what am I saying? It doesn't, they, they can send an email to whoever they want. I, I don't think, get an email from Google, you hit the spam button inside of Gmail. Who's monitoring that? Probably someone. Probably shouldn't be so cynical. They do. I think they do try, but. But I thought that was interesting. You know, I, uh, 
these things apparently work. My, you, you can't be sure. Uh, my dad thought that. I was like, you have to hit the spam button if you get an email that you don't want. My dad was like, well, doesn't that just signal to them that you exist? Like, doesn't it just signal that, like, there is somebody? So they would be all the more inclined to keep sending email to that. And I was like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. It's, it's kind of like, do you answer a spam call and ask to be put on the do not subscribe list? If you just don't answer, then nobody can confirm that there actually is anybody on the other end. Uh, but as soon as you, yeah, make yourself known, you kind of got a target on your back. It's the same thing with uh, SMS spam. I don't know, what is this? I also read, I saw, I, I deployed a website for the pandemic. It was meant to like connect people who were sheltering in place and at risk, couldn't go out with neighbors who could possibly buy supplies for them. It was like, okay, first week of the crisis, like, well, I'm, I'm shut up in, in, you know, in my home. I kind of want to build something. I was still programming at that point. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll build this thing. And I, I used all Amazon stuff to build it, like their tools, deployed it into their cloud. And I used their, I think it's Route 53. Like I registered the domain name for the site with them. And since I did that, uh, I have gotten so much spam from people, like emails, text messages. Uh, I'm sure a couple phone calls I haven't answered have been that, but saying like, hey, you know, we're, uh, we notice you registered this domain. We can build you a website. Ask us about our rates. I was like, come on. I expected more from you, Amazon, really. Aren't you making enough money to sell my information to others? Maybe it's not them. Maybe it just puts you on a list somewhere that's publicly accessible. I remember when I bought the domain, there was a feature, it was like a checkbox that said, make this private. Maybe just the way we, we do DNS, and if you register and don't cloak who you are, it's publicly scrapable, and there's just people doing that, selling those lists of contact information and I'm hearing from the companies that buy it. Might not be Amazon's fault. As a matter of fact, I'd be surprised if they were. The bigger a company is, the more it stands to lose by sacrificing goodwill. It's a beautiful day out. I am loving this. All right. I think I'm going to wrap this up. Noonday is quickly approaching. Um, feel like my head is clearing up. Talking through all this has felt good. I feel less groggy. Less like I got too much sleep. Um, I'm going to go do some reading. Catch some rays. Uh, soak up the sun. Uh, per the usual, hey, thanks for tuning in. If you did and if you listened to all this, wherever you are out there, I hope you are healthy and continue to remain so. Sorry this is all happening to us. I know this sucks. We're going to get through it. 
we're going to come out the other end and be stronger than ever. I know I'm very unconvincing, but hey, thanks for listening. Um, I will catch you next time. Have a good rest of your day. This is Jim signing off. Cheerio.